Hello, and welcome to my Love Letter Time Machine, a podcast where we are discovering the Victorian love story told through the love letters of two ordinary people from Sheffield, Yorkshire, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton, who were courting in the 1880s. I'm Ingrid Birchall-Hughes, and I just happen to be their great-great-granddaughter. And this time, we'll be taking a look at a bereavement and at the world's first ever floodlit football match. So the other day, when I was digging around in the huge blue box file in which I currently keep Fred and Jane's letters, I came across an old paper bag that I hadn't noticed before. When I looked inside, there were two pieces of paper. One was an undertaker's invoice for Janie's funeral, which took place in 1921. And the other was a condolence letter sent to Jane after Fred's death in 1893. I'm struck with the placement of these two pieces of paper. It must have been deliberate And as the meaning dawned, I had a strange sting of grief from a long time ago. One of their children, most likely my great-grandmother Edith, had put the evidence of the passing of her parents, separated by nearly 30 years, reunited together into a humble paper bag, folded up and tucked into the pile of their love letters. It's an oddly touching ritual, and it gives me a window into an intensely private and tender moment, I can almost feel Edith's belief that Fred and Jane were at last reunited. And it reminded me of a similar moment I discovered in the diary that Fred kept in 1878. Fred writes... Friday, October the 4th, 1878. My father died on this day, which threw a gloom over our house. I did not see Janie until Saturday, October the 12th, when she was dressed in black, a delicate mark of empathy which I appreciated. Fred has obviously written this retrospectively, and around the date he drew a black border. But what tells me far more than his economy with words here is that This corner of the page is worn and faded and dirty. It looks like this entry has been turned to and stroked many times. So much so that there are little holes worn into the paper. The rest of the diary in comparison is clean and in fairly good condition. Fred has obviously gone back to this page again and again and again. He hasn't written anything about his father. But these wear marks speak so loudly of love and loss. These stains are the stains of grief and are more eloquent than the sparse words written. It seems ridiculous that a worn piece of paper can reveal someone's emotional state from 143 years ago, but when you look at it, it's obvious. Realising this gave me a powerful moment of connection. I think it was the moment that Fred became a real person to me, not just a memory lost in the pages of some old letters.
Fred's father and my two times great grandfather was Alfred Shepherd. He was born in Kimberworth, Rotherham, in either 1807 or 1808. He was a roll turner in the steel mills. Roll turners had the job of producing the rods and bars used for construction, but their chief job was to produce the miles and miles of railway tracks that were in massive demand globally. He would have known he was part of the new industrial architecture with all the advent of steel and glass, such as the Crystal Palace. He would have understood that he was part of this new technology and there would have been a great sense of pride with his connection to these innovations. He would have understood its significance. It was a very skilled job that required a high degree of innovation and collaboration between the role turners and the architects or designers. Roll turners worked in pairs of teams either side of huge steam-powered lathes passing a white hot metal blank backwards and forwards, lengthening the bar until they became the required thickness and shape. The work was hot and noisy and extremely physically demanding. Alfred was married to Anne and the 1861 census records them as living with one daughter and five sons in a tiny red brick terrace house in Darnall. It was the kind of house with two bedrooms, a parlour, a kitchen and a small yard out back where Fred and his brother, Arthur, kept two pigs. Alfred's funeral took place on the 8th of October 1878, after which he was laid to rest in the churchyard of Christchurch Attercliffe. We know from the earlier diary entry that Fred and Janie met up four days later. It's very hard to say how much mourning was observed at this distance, but we're in the middle of the time period during the height of the cult of Victorian mourning, which was a particularly heavy financial burden. The social expectation of following the appropriate mourning customs was so intense that poor families would often go without basic needs in order to have sufficient funeral funds. As Fred records, Jane made a delicate mark of empathy at that meeting by wearing black. And given that they only met two months earlier, I think that a certain amount of mourning customs are definitely being observed. In the letter that Fred sent prior to this meeting, there is an initial discussion about the different trains he tried to accidentally meet her from. And this confused me at first until reading some of the later letters. It became clear that one of the ways they contrived to see each other was to let each other know about their train journeys to and from town and just happen to be at the station when the train got in. After the discussion about Sheffield timetable logistics, Fred decided to restart the letter. Angelic Janie, could you so far forget yourself as to honour a poor misguided but devoted admirer, a distant glimpse of your entrancing and soul-inspiring person on the sixth day of this week, commonly called Friday, or on the 11th day of the month of October, inconvenience yourself in any way, as it will be a walk if I do not see you. Until then, I remain your... I do not know what to call myself in relation to you, except that I am myself, that most important person, Fred. Fred, ever the practical romantic, as it will be a walk if I do not see you. (laughs) I do love how he sends himself up with the tongue-in-cheek humour here. 
In later letters from Janie, she matches Fred for quips. And I think one of the things that must have drawn them together is that they probably made each other laugh quite a lot. Frustratingly, after this, the rest of 1878 goes dark. No letters and no diary entries until the Christmas season and the new year where Fred starts to write his diary in real time, rather than retrospectively. However, while I have an information blackout for the rest of October and November, things were literally brightening up in Sheffield and the rest of Great Britain. This was the time the advent of electricity in public spaces blazed its way into Janie and Fred's and everyone else's lives, and it came in the form of the world's first floodlit football match. Set up as a joint venture by electrical companies and football clubs, with the idea of both increasing football attendance and to prove the potential of electric lighting in the public arena, it was on the 14th of October in 1878 in Bramall Lane where they staged a unique event. Here, the Sheffield and Rotherham Independent waxes about the wonders of the new technology. Football by the electric light, reads the headline. The interest aroused by the application of the electric light to social uses was strikingly apparent at Sheffield on Wednesday night, when nearly 30,000 people gathered at the Bramall Lane grounds to witness a football match by means of the electric light. The match, which was played by two teams belonging to the Sheffield Football Association, commenced at half past seven o'clock. The electric light was thrown on the ground from four lamps 30 feet from the ground, and the rays, which were of great brilliancy, lighted nearly the whole of the ground, and the players could be seen almost as clearly as noonday. When the light was turned on, the crowd cheered loudly, and then watched the game with great interest. Some amusement was caused by the brilliancy of the light, which dazzled the players somewhat and caused some strange blunders. Behind each goal was placed a portable engine, each of which drove two dynamo electric machines, one for each light. The illuminating power was equivalent to 8,000 standard candles and the cost per hour for each light was three and a half pence. The tickets at Bramall Lane that night earned in excess of £300, the highest ever for an association match in England. But no doubt many of the crowd were there to witness the artificial lighting and not the football. Indeed, the Sheffield Telegraph seemed more impressed with the social impact and wrote, There was an overwhelming interest in the experiment and excursionists arrived in large numbers from distant grounds. Between six and seven o'clock, it seemed as if all Sheffield was heading for Bramall Lane. The streets were thronged from all direction. At the game, curiosity conquered customary courtesy and the few who were really interested in the play were obliged to give way to the many who had eyes only for the new lights. Many of the ladies, once within the rays, shot up umbrellas as if they would parasols to shield them from the sun at midday. Our Fred was a keen footballer, playing at different times for Attercliffe and Darnell, and was in demand by the different captains for the cup tie the following year. There is no doubt in my mind that he would have been completely aware of this event. Clearly, the whole of Sheffield was, and beyond, but I wonder if he was actually there. 
I'm certain several of his friends would have made sure they were there. They were part of the Sheffield footballing world. It would be intriguing to think that curiosity conquered customary courtesy for Fred also, but his father had been buried less than a week before. It was unseemly to attend social events for months after the death of a parent, and I feel rather sad at the idea of Fred missing out on such a treat. As he was recording this part of his diary retrospectively, an eyewitness account of a floodlit Bramall Lane would surely have been worth a mention. Two years later on, when he sees the Blackpool Illuminations, first switched on in 1879 and perhaps conceived of because of the Bramall Lane event, he's very impressed with them in his letter to Janie. Knowing what I know of Fred in terms of his character, I think that with deep, deep regret, he would have stayed at home. But I'm sure he lapped up every detail from everyone he knew who did go. In later letters, Janie and Fred both mentioned fiddling with the gas for more light while writing, electricity not being part of their domestic sphere. However, on the 14th of October, 1878, they would have known, beyond any doubt, that their world was changing forever. And so now we have to skip ahead to the end of that year with the last few entries in Fred's diary. Thursday, December the 19th. Told Janie that the future was so unsatisfactory that I thought it would be advisable to part. She said we had better not. So we agreed to think about it. Sunday, December the 22nd. Had another interview with Janie when it came out her mother offered serious objections, which she thought might be got over in time. A desperate bit of kissing, etc., ensued when we thought it was going to be the last. Trying to work out just how much and why the early days of Janie and Fred's relationship were blighted by the disapproval of Janie's family, the Warburtons, is tricky when the only lens I've got for this time are those few sporadic diary entries. Fred is feeling that his shortcomings in the eyes of Mrs Warburton, whatever they were, are insurmountable, and it seems to be that Janie is holding fast to the idea of being with Fred. It's frustrating to have so little of her voice this early on in their story, but she's coming across to me as knowing what she wants, and she wants Fred, and strong-willed to the point of crossing her mother. You may remember from the previous episode that they had literally come to blows about the matter when the relationship had started. And Fred and Jane have set up the whole accidentally on purpose bumping into each other at railway stations so as to meet, which I think means that during this time they are keeping their liaison secret to stop Janie getting into trouble. I also think Fred was feeling discouraged by the Warburton's low opinion of him, which may well have fueled any insecurities that he would have had about his own prospects and his eventual ability to provide enough for a wife. It is also becoming clear from his diary entries and responses from letters of his friends that Fred was prone to depression, or melancholy as they termed it then. Janie later comes to refer to this as his lemoncholy, which tells me two things, that she accepted Fred's dark moods and endeavoured to cheer him with what our family, and I know many families do, by inventing daft spoonerisms. 
And so it looks like Fred and Janie's relationship started with their many walks from Darnall up to Hansworth. That was a good two miles. A long walk when you are on your own, but far too short a journey when you're falling in love. All journeys are too short when you are in love, and Fred and Jane's journey was no different. As we'll discover in this story, they eventually won out and did get married. But they were married for only 12 years before Fred was taken by tuberculosis at the far too young age of 35. Jane treasured Fred's diaries and their love letters for the rest of her life, and before she died, she gave them to her daughter Edith, who gave them to her daughter Mary, who in turn gave them to her daughter, my mother, Jeannie. On a personal note, I've had quite a difficult couple of years. I mean, we've all had a difficult couple of years under the cloud of COVID. And I'm not sure what I would have done without my friends and particularly my family. But I had not expected to be thrown a lifeline by my family from 140 years ago. I know Fred and Jane would have had no conscious thought about a descendant as far forward as me, their great-great-granddaughter, but I feel an inner surety that they would have been content to know that the letters they had left behind might give comfort and joy and a means of occupation to their future family. And I feel as if this love that Fred and Jane shared is somehow still alive, even though they are long gone and their story is demanding to be told, which is why I'm sharing it with you. Thanks for listening to my Love Letter Time Machine. We'll be back in our next episode, in which we get to see Fred's Christmas activities and how he welcomed in the new year of 1879. In the meantime, you can follow me sharing excerpts of Fred and Janie's letters on Instagram at my love letter time machine, all one word. But for now, I'll say thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a great week.